welcome to the season finale of Jams Radio. This finale is going to be one like no other because we have Eli Beer, um, the actual man himself of United Israel Hatzalah fame with us today. Welcome, Eli. Hi, great to be with you. Thank you for joining us, especially in what I'm sure is supposed to be a recovery period. But for those of you who are listening but can't see, Ellie's uh, fully dressed and ready to go save another life. So he's not taking that recovery period seriously at all by the looks of it. Um, Quincy is here from the Manchester Grammar School and he's going to head off with the first question. My first question is every great company or every big organization ha- normally has an origin story, you know, where, why. My question is, what is the origin story for United Hatsala? Okay, so um, great question. So it really started by accident, um, or maybe call it by an explosion. I was a child, I grew up in Jerusalem, and uh, a little neighborhood near um, Yad Vashem, if you know the Holocaust Memorial uh, Museum. And right there, when I was coming back from school, I was waiting next to a bus stop, and uh, a bus that arrived blew up in front of my eyes. And I was only uh, six years old then. Um, I don't remember the whole incident, but I remember people screaming for help, and people were in the bus. The bus was burning. Ended up that it was uh, the first uh, terror, terrorist attack on a bus in Jerusalem, um, and uh, six people were killed and about 55 people were injured. It was a very bad uh, terrorist attack, and that led me to grow up thinking of the terror, the, the you know the trauma I went through, and how I want to see my life um, impacting. So I always thought maybe when I grow up, I'll be a doctor or maybe a paramedic. And then when I was 15 years old, I went to volunteer in the back of an ambulance. And I I realized being in the back of an ambulance for a year and a half, although it's a great experience, it's really, really good, but we can't save anyone. By the time we get to every emergency, it's a few minutes too late or sometimes a few seconds too late. So when I was six years old, all I cared about is saving a life. And then when I was on the back of an ambulance, I realized you can't save anyone's life. You could help people if they're waiting for you breathing, but if they're not breathing, by the time you get to them, they're not alive, they're dead. And um, that's really how it led to uh, starting this idea of having first responders from the communities responding to emergencies while ambulances are stuck in traffic. You've now expanded to become different to the National Ambulance Service in Israel. What do you think the biggest difference is between United Israel Hatzalah and MADA? Okay, so that's, that's a great continuation of that first question. Well, I was a year and a half in the back of a MADA ambulance. Two things bothered me. The first thing that bothered me was the fact that we... Although we did great work, it was great, it was a good feeling, but I never got to save anyone. Anyone I couldn't bring back to life because it took us an average of between 15 to 25 minutes to arrive to emergency. That was the first thing that bothered me. Second thing that bothered me that every single time we treated someone, even if the person died in the end, we gave them a bill. The ambulance in Israel costs money. It's not like in England. The mother ambulances cost a lot of money for people. They have to pay for it. And although some of them get insurance, pay them back, but not everyone. 
So a lot of people, they think twice or three times before they call for an ambulance because it ends up that they're paying for a service. It's not a government service. It's a private entity. So these are the two things that bothered me a year and a half while I was volunteering. And then what changed my life completely was an emergency call that we were sent to for a seven-year-old boy who was choking. Um, and he was, having, he was eating lunch and he was uh, eating a, a sausage. And when he ate the wrong, he put it in the wrong pipe by mistake. It went into the wrong pipe and he choked. His mother called for an ambulance. And I was in the back of that mother ambulance. It took me, it took us 21 minutes to arrive to the scene. We came from the other side of town. We were the only ambulance available. Now this mother wanted someone to save her, her son's life. She was crying and begging. She was calling the ambulance every second. Where are you? Where are you? And they said, he's coming. They're coming. They're coming. When we arrived, the boy was completely blue and cold on the floor. We started resuscitating, trying to save his life. Then, maybe a minute later, a doctor who was walking on the street saw the ambulance parked downstairs. He was walking his dog, and he ran upstairs to help us. We, were wild. we, were, we started working on this boy a minute before this doctor arrived. And he says, I'm a doctor, and he started helping us. And a few minutes later, he says, just bring a sheet to cover him. There is nothing to do. He's not alive anymore. That moment was the worst moment of my life. But that's when I had an epiphany. And I realized that if this doctor would have known 20 minutes earlier, if someone would have notified him 20 minutes earlier, 21 minutes earlier, this child would not die. He would be alive. Not only that. By the time we arrive with the ambulance, he'll probably be walking and no need for help. Because this doctor could have done the Heimlich maneuver on him and saved him. Now, I realized that moment that you could be the best doctor in the world. You could have the best ambulance in the world. But if you don't get there in time, there is nothing you could do. You can reverse these kind of incidents. You can reverse time. It's not like when you get a delivery of pizza and it's cold, you just put it in a microwave and you will heat it up. This, a person, when he starts brain damage, the person can't, it can't, it's irreversible. And that's the moment I, was, I decided I'm going to start a network of volunteers responding before MDA arrives, before the ambulance arrives. Now, MDA did not like that idea at all because they had more or less a monopoly of all emergencies. Every emergency had to go through them. And they send an ambulance. And I said to them, wait, I want to get there before you because I have a network of my friends who want to respond to emergencies. They said no. So they, didn't, they weren't willing to send us the emergency calls. So we had to think of something out of the box. We call it chutzpah. And we went ahead and we bought these police scanners. Uh, I don't know if they have them in England, but in America, they used to sell them in Radio Shack. You buy these police scanners, you, you could actually break into the emergency calls of the ambulances and hear all their incidents. So that's how we started with one, one police scanner. I actually bought it for my, my bar mitzvah's money. And some other guy bought another one. So we had two in the beginning. And that's how we started responding to emergencies that they, their ambulance is responding to. And that's how we knew about them. And that's how we responded. It's just incredible because it, it's something that it seems such a basic concept that has become something so fundamental to the existence of our country, really. Because it rises and falls, I suppose, to, to quote the movie A Few Good Men, which will probably be way out of the boys' uh, timeline. 
but they rise and fall onto the blanket of protection and life-saving emergencies and saving, really, that you provide. So obviously that was sort of the beginning. You've grown a lot. What's your relationship like now with the sort of official ambulance service? It's a very interesting, complicated question. Okay, so um, the truth is, it's, it has two parts to the answer. The answer is, we have an incredible relationship with the people on the field, like the paramedics and doctors and employees of the, of, uh, the official ambulance service. We actually get along really well because they like us. We're helping them save lives. The unions, the one who actually controls that organization, the management, the executive directors and, and PR people, they don't like us too much. And that's great, actually. If you think about it, a lot of you guys are going to build businesses. Maybe one of you one day is going to come and fix a big problem that another huge organization was supposed to do years ago. And when you start that pro- fixing that problem, you're going to get a lot of big companies very upset about this. Look at Uber. I'm just taking it as an example. Uber fixed a very big problem with the taxi industry. Although taxis in England and London are great, but you can't get a taxi fast enough if, you need a, if you're in a rush, right? Because sometimes you're in, I don't know, uh, somewhere far and, and in the suburbs or somewhere and you can't get a taxi. But today you press a button and you get an Uber taxi, an Uber driver within, he might be a regular guy with his own private vehicle. He might be, he might be a nurse in the hospital, that, that driver. But in the evenings, he drives an Uber car, his own personal car, and he drives you around. He makes, it, he makes money out of it. But the taxi industry, we're not happy about this thing. Why didn't they think about this idea years before? But they didn't think about it. And all of a sudden, this crazy guy came up with this idea. We were the same idea. We don't do this for money. We don't charge. We're the only emergency services in Israel who do not charge for service. So unions actually don't like this idea of volunteers coming in into their territory. Although we're not trying to take their business away, but we're saving people that don't need ambulances anymore. Think about that seven-year-old boy who choked and died. If we would have arrived within two minutes and saved this child, that kid would not have to go to the hospital. That's a loss of income for an ambulance. Now in England, you guys don't pay for ambulances. I know it works a lot different. Here in Israel, the government doesn't own the ambulances. It's a private entity that owns it. It's a, it's a NGO, but it's not a, it's not a charity. Actually, they don't come for free. They charge. So when we came ahead and we started as a private organization, non-for-profit to serve people and give them that service, it wasn't so comfortable. But actually, on the field, we work beautifully all, all the time. We have great relationships. So what's your overhead per day? Uh, I don't understand the word overhead because that's a very wide wor- uh, um, term. What does it cost you to be on the ground saving lives for one day in the state of Israel? Love that question. We treat about 1,700 people every day in average. It costs us around 14,000 pounds to operate overhead for this organization throughout the country. That means including oxygen, medication, insurance, training, all these things cost us about 14,000 pounds a day. I'm taking, I'm taking my calculator, which I have here, and I'm making 14,000 pounds divided by 1,700 emergencies. That's eight pounds and 23 pennies for an emergency. Wow. 
So um, my next question before Quincy comes in, because I know he's got, but then most of your stuff must have come from China because that's incredibly cheap. So how have you survived with that over the corona period? Well, this is actually, the corona period is actually a little more expensive because we have to wear, every single time we go to emergency, we have to wear at least a mask. And the, and the patient sometimes doesn't wear a mask, so we have to give the patient a mask. And his family sometimes don't wear a mask, so we have to give them masks. So we're talking about at least, and, and we come usually two volunteers to an emergency. So just the protection gear costs another, let's say, a dollar, another pound or so, an emergency, just for the corona times. Um, besides that, if we have a suspicion of corona to the patient, which we have every day, unfortunately, we have to wear whole protection gear, which costs about, I would say, another 17, 18 pounds for the whole, you know, the whole uniform. Um, so that's something that we have to consider it in, above our regular overhead. Israel um, is a diverse and complex place. You know, there are courses and courses you can go on and you still won't understand the whole situation in Israel. My question is, is how does United Hatzalah deal with the multiple different elements of Israeli society well, whether that's to do with um, Israel-Palestine or whether that's to do with the split between Orthodox and non-Orthodox, Dati and Lumi? How does Hatzalah deal with all of, you know, while trying to give healthcare to everybody? Okay, you know, you guys are very smart and you're asking great questions. So that's actually a, one of the elements that is so important for Israel and for United Hatzalah. We used to call ourselves Hatzalah many years ago. We were, Hatzalah means rescue uh, or save in English. And it was mostly in the Orthodox communities around Israel. And uh, about 16 years ago, I realized that we don't have a fast enough response because we're missing a lot of places where we don't have any volunteers. So I went ahead and I started fixing that problem by going to communities around Israel and trying to recruit volunteers there. They were secular communities. A lot of these people said, what? We know your organization, but it's a bunch of Orthodox. In Hebrew, they say dosim. I don't know if you know that term, dosim. It's like a nickname for... It's a negative a nice term name. for Haredim. Exactly. People used to say, oh, you guys are like dosim. You're like these Haredi guys uh, who are responding to calls. We're not going to feel comfortable. I said, no, no, no. It ends up, we, a lot of us wear a kippah and yarmulkes, but it's not a Haredi or a dosi organization. It's a life-saving organization. This is not a shul or a yeshiva. This is actually a life-saving organization. And I started recruiting people who are not religious to Hatzalah. And it just became unbelievable, unbelievable. The fact that we had religious and secular Haredi, which is ultra-Orthodox, and modern Orthodox, serving in one, Chabad, and, uh, and, 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 and guys who are not Chabad, and Hasidim, and different types of people, just brought a beautiful um, um, mosaic of people. And then... One day we started, I got a phone call from uh, a group of Arabs who wanted to meet me. Uh, they were living in East Jerusalem and they called me up and they said they want to meet. I, I didn't know what they want to meet for. I asked them, what is it about? They said about Hazola. They couldn't pronounce the word Hazola. So I said to them, you mean Hezbollah? So they were laughing. They said, no, 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 we mean Hazola. I said, really? What, what do you want to talk about? They said, no, we want to meet. And they, they met, we met. And this guy said, my father had a heart attack and he collapsed at home. And I waited 55 minutes for uh, an ambulance, an MDA ambulance. He's 55 minutes in East Jerusalem. Uh, and he said, 
if I knew how to save him, I would have saved him myself, but I didn't know what to do. I want to become a volunteer of Hatzalah. I want to save other people. My father died, but I want to save people. And uh, I heard that. I had chills in my body. And I said, you know what? Ahlan wasahlan. That's in Arabic. Uh, you're welcome. You know, come join us. I, you know, Baruch Haba in Hebrew. And I told him, bring some of your friends and let's start a course of EMT course. Uh, and, and they did. They brought 25 uh, young uh, Arab uh, people. I mean, they were ages from 20 to 40 or 50. And they uh, joined the course. And that was the first group of Arabs that joined United Hatzalah. And that's why we changed the name after that to United Hatzalah. Because we realized that if we want to get to 90-second response, which is our goal, we need to include everyone who lives in this country. And that became one of the greatest things that United Hatzalah ever did. And something that probably should be replicated in Israeli politics, um, because the outcome would be remarkable. Uh, so, you, so obviously, it's run mainly by volunteers. Other than sort of keeping costs down, are there any other advantages to having volunteers be the ones to respond? Okay, so I'll tell you something. It's, it's uh, incredible to see the reaction of volunteers. The, besides the fact that you don't have to spend money to actually get someone to, to run to save someone, it doesn't cost you, you don't have to pay a salary. But the motivation of this person who's a volunteer, it could be a, a man or a woman who are volunteering, their motivation to save someone is 10 times higher than someone who gets paid. I don't know what is a, a what, I'm, I'm sure people who work in an ambulance have motivation, right? Because why would they work in an ambulance if not? But after five years working in an ambulance, and after you go on to strike a couple of times because you don't get enough salary, and after you go so upset because they screwed you and put you in a, the wrong shifts on, on Saturday instead of uh, on Monday, and they put you on Friday nights, and, they, and, and you get paid very little. And then during the winter when it's so cold, you don't get a raise because it's, it doesn't work like that. Your motivation slowly goes down. A volunteer's motivation never goes down because he gets in return. The volunteer gets in return zero. And you can't, you can't, you can't compete with this. When someone gets 15 pounds an hour, and the other person gets zero, the person who gets zero's motivation is 10 times higher. And I hope you agree with me. How does it test your faith? Because I know that one of your volunteers not so long ago lost one of their own children to sudden infant death syndrome. And there is also a balance between realizing that even as a volunteer, even with a 90 second response, even with working for the world's greatest saving organization, there are times when God takes a life. How does that test your faith? Well, we had unfortunately a lot of terrible incidents that happened to our people. We had people who lost their own families in terrible accidents or in terrible events like you just mentioned. We had volunteers themselves that were killed on the way to emergencies. We drive these ambicycles. We invented that idea of having an ambulance on two wheels, a motorcycle. We actually have these ambicycles all over Israel that are saving lives. And the volunteers who are riding it are putting their own lives in danger. We have one volunteer right now who's in a critical condition in the hospital after he was hit by someone on the way to an emergency. Another one who passed away a few years ago. And it's incredible to see that their motivation after these incidents get even stronger to save people. They paid a very expensive price in their own lives. But I have one volunteer who actually was here terribly injured. He was actually on the way to emergency call in Ramat Gan of a 
terrible accident. And it was a, a, a summer night. It was two o'clock in the morning. It was night, two o'clock in the morning, uh, very early in the morning. Let's put it this way. He was driving the ambicycle and they had water on the floor because they, someone was like, they, they had these, someone was watering their garden or whatever it is and water came to the street. And the, the, in Israel, it doesn't rain in the summer. So the summer is very slippery if it rains. Very, very slippery. The roads become very slippery because of the oils coming up. Um, and, he, and the whole ambicycle slipped and he fell into a ditch. Uh, and our GPS technology that we have on each ambicycle realized that he stopped in the wrong location. So they searched after him. And luckily, they found him, but he was in a critical condition. Guess what? A year later, he was back, not riding an ambicycle, but we gave him a little emergency vehicle that he responds with that. And he's back to saving lives. And I said to him, how do you get the strength after what happened to you? You, you can hardly walk. He says, when I was, sick, I was in the hospital fighting for my life, the only thing I, was, I, I wanted to do is go back to save lives. Every single day, I was waiting for the moment that I could touch that oxygen tank and open it for someone and, and give someone oxygen. And that's the reason why I, I recovered. So I was waiting for this moment. So here in the UK, it seems to be, and none of us are scientists, and certainly coronavirus has taught us that none of us can see the future or even know what is going to happen. But it seems that those people that are testing positive now ha are getting a, a much lighter strain and not ending up in intensive care on ventilation. But Israel hasn't got there yet, and certainly you were caught short. I suppose, how did it feel, and how has your health been affected, and where's Israel at the moment? Because it from looking like the heroes at the beginning of this pandemic, they're now looking like they're struggling a little bit more. Well, unfortunately, this, this pandemic and this terrible virus, no one knows anything about it, even till today. No one knows. No one knows. People think they know. They don't know anything. This is such a complicated situation we're in. It's, um, a lot of diseases around, you know, in the history, like polio and others, people knew a lot more than what people know now with all this technology around. People know, don't know why a lot more people get infected now and less people get seriously ill. They have different assumptions that people are coming up with. So my personal story, I'm sure you know, but I'll just say it in short, but I was traveling and I got sick in Miami. This was in March. Actually, Actually, I'm not sure if it was in Miami. It could be in London. I was in London a few days before. I came from London. I, I flew to Miami. I was 100% well. And then a few days later, I just felt terribly sick. And I, I went to quarantine right away. I had fever. And then a few days later, I was in the hospital. I waited because I thought, you know what? I'm just going to wait with it. Maybe it's going to go away. I didn't know I have corona. And by the way, even then, the hospitals were not checking people. They didn't have any ways of checking in Miami. So they had maybe very few tests. But then when I went to the hospital, I was one of the first patients there. They said to me, I'm fine. I'll probably have to go back home. And it doesn't look like corona because when I came, I didn't have fever because I took uh, Tylenol before. And I said to them, can't be. And they said, you know what? They did an x-ray on me and they realized how sick I am. And they said, you have to go to ICU. So I went to the ICU and then five days later, they said, I have to be intubated. I have to be induced into coma. That was the worst moment of my life, really, in my personal life. And um, 
I woke up a month later, more or less, after fighting, fighting for my life for a month. I was very weak. I'm still a little weak. I still have hard days, but I'm, I'm fighting it to go back to normal. Like, you know, I always wanted to go back to saving lives. That was my main thing. And now when I was in Miami, I had to fly back to Israel. I got back to Israel. Israel was locked down more or less. I was in, it was April, right after Passover. And uh, things were getting better and better. I was looking out of the window and I see every day more and more people walking in the streets, less people wearing masks. I was worried about that because the masks are very important for protection. I realized how people don't, you know, they said, okay, it's over, it's over. It's not really over. And I said this loudly, people should wear masks. And then less and less people got sick in Israel and everything looked great and things went back to normal. And then the second wave came and now we have a second wave in Israel. So in the good days, I would say like a month ago, we had 50 people, 40 people a day, 30 people a day get sick. Now we have 1,300 people a day get sick. But less people get into the ICU as seriously ill. I can't explain it. No one really understands that. Um, in America, they have the same thing now. Less people getting seriously, but still some people end up in a ventilator. Right now in Jerusalem, if you look outside of our window in United Hatzalah headquarters, they have a lockdown to a few, for a few neighborhoods. So we have right outside of us a neighborhood. It's called Romema area. It's like the more ultra-Orthodox areas are all locked down. You can't get in and out. They just, police are guarding the whole area. Lockdown. They have a few other cities in Israel that have lockdowns. But in Tel Aviv right now, life is more or less okay, but people are now getting big fines for not wearing masks in Israel. Do you feel as though you're immune and protected now that you've been so sick with it? Do you feel safer in a weird way? Me personally, I don't feel immune. I'm very scared to meet people. I just had a meeting right here and I was wearing my mask. Although my doctor said I have very high, very high numbers of antibodies, a week ago, I flew, to, I flew to New York, and people said, you're crazy for flying to New York. So I said, I'm immune. Why shouldn't I fly to New York? I, I felt that, really, I can't get sick again, but it's scary because, when, you know, you never know. I don't want to be sick again. It's very, what I went through, I don't wish it on anyone, God, God forbid, to go through. It was a very bad experience. So I'm, I'm very careful, but on the other hand, I'm continuing my life. I'm here at Hatzalah now, working at United Hatzalah headquarters in Jerusalem. And I go traveling and I go meetings, but I try my best to be, when I was on the plane just Friday, when I came back to Israel, I wore this the whole time. I didn't take it off. I, when I had to eat, I ate. But to tell you the truth, the food they give in the airlines is so bad, I would keep this on the whole time. Nobody can predict the future. Um, but if anybody knows anything about healthcare or fast action response, it will be you. So very simply, 100 years ago, we had a massive virus which overtook the planet, Spanish flu. The way in which we reacted to that, some people said did affect the healthcare system, some people didn't. My question is, will this virus or has this virus affected the healthcare system or fast action response? And will we remember it and learn from it, hopefully mitigating the same problem in the future? Well, a hundred years ago, and, and by the way, if you think about it, I just, someone asked me yesterday, what do I think the future will bring us? Like what I think? I actually think humans always won. 
in the end of the day, the question is, what's it going to be the price? You know, the, the black plague like they had 100 years ago was a terrible plague that caused the death of millions of people. I really think we're in a much better situation in terms of our, our plague. And I think this plague is even more serious than the Black Plague. But we, are, we know how to handle it much better uh, today. But the only big problem is that we didn't have 100 years ago is the loss of the livelihood of so many people. Then people didn't depend upon flying places. Hotels weren't as common as today. The tourism wasn't common like today. How many people 100 years ago when traveling to Europe or vice versa to Asia, whatever it is, the financial burden is so big today, so big today that it's sometimes, if you, if you count up how many lives will be lost because of the financial burden that happened the whole world, the numbers are going to be very big. If you, if you count it, you know, after this whole thing, they're going to make researchers and see how many people lost their lives because of the financial distress that they were in. But in terms of loss of lives, we're going to have a few hundred thousand people die. We have already, but I don't think it's going to be as worse as 100 years ago. I don't think so, because I think we're going to know how to control it in, in a few months from now, hopefully, hopefully. I, I can't, I'm just doing a lot of research to find out they have 140 serious companies that are putting, they're very close to finding some kind of a solution for a vaccine. Uh, and a lot of medicine companies that are coming up, they can eventually win this thing. But the question is, what's going to be the, the damages, financial damages? Of course, the families who lost their, their relatives. Think about how many people died that their whole livelihood was depending upon them. So it's, it's a big disaster, a terrible disaster for a lot of people. But I really think that in the next 8 to 12 months, this thing is going to go away. I think the, the religious, certainly in outside of Israel, and definitely I think you've proven inside of Israel, the religious Jewish community are the most resourceful human beings, I think, bar none. They find a, a gap in a market that for a need like Hatzalah, um, Misaskim, and all of those sorts of organizations, there's a gemach for everything, as they say. Um, the most resourceful, and it's really difficult to watch social protests, which they seem often to be just as skilled at, alongside, you know, all the brilliant things that are done. And watching now what's going on in Israel, I think for the first time in a long time for Jews like myself, we're actually not sure we're on the same side that we were for lots of other social protests. We're thinking, is there marginalization going on here? Is this what we're seeing? And I know that's a difficult question, but what's your view on it now? Are they locking down areas in Israel based on prejudices? It, is there politics involved in the damage control at the moment? Uh, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, I'm an Orthodox Jew, and I don't think any prejudiced um, ideas are behind locking down anywhere because. They have a lot of neighborhoods that are locked down. A lot of them are not Orthodox in Batyam and different places around Israel. It's, of course, more colorful when it's a religious neighborhood because it's easier to, to film it on TV. Um, and people take it seriously. And I, I also take it seriously. I saw this terrible incident where a policeman stopped this 13-year-old girl, and I was crying when I saw it. I was literally crying. 
seeing this incident where a little young religious Orthodox girl, Haredi girl, was walking with her sisters in the street and she wasn't wearing a mask and the police stopped her. And it's just mind boggling that there is some prejudice in the police here and there, but as a government, I would not say that because don't forget the Minister of Health in Israel is a religious Jew and his name is Yuli Edelstein. Um, and he's a wonderful guy. I, he, he has nothing to do with against anyone, not against Arabs and not against religious and not against anyone. It's just the fact is that we have a lot of religious people in Israel that are going to shul in small little places where it's right now not good to do anyway. They should daven outside in an open space. I would say 95% of the Orthodox Jews are 100% and they're doing all the rules, but a few don't. And that, that pays, that's a price to pay afterwards because if you get 300 people with Corona in, in, uh, in one week in a, in a religious neighborhood, they have to shut it down. 300 people, think about it, 300 people who are going home now and they're going to be home and their families are going to get infected as well because they have each one a few kids. So they have to be very cautious about this. And I, and I call all the from Haredi Jews in Israel to be very, very careful. They, they think that, you know, sometimes they think it's over. And like, by the way, Tel Aviv is the same thing. Tel Aviv, they were going to the beaches like nothing happened. They were sitting one next to each other in the beaches in big groups of 20 people, which was illegal. They did a lot of illegal. People don't realize that this is so bad, this, this thing. They have to be extra careful today. So I don't think there is any prejudice in when it comes to it, but they have incidents that are not, not nice, to, that has to be stopped, of course. But um, that's about right. your So they're, they're trigger points then, are they? Because I was speaking to my sister last night, who lives in Israel, and I said to her, if I was in, in any of the Haredi communities, I'd buy our angel bakery of all the Danishes, along with your mask, you take a Danish, and every time you see any of the mishtara, you hand them a Danish and you say, Yom Naim, Show, show what you're really like because we know that there's more to it than is on the surface. And it's just so upsetting to watch when there's such good work being done. I want to add one thing to this because this is, you asked, I, I actually think that this, these times in Israel, I would say 90% the love is shown more than any other time between religious and secular in Israel and between non-Jews and Jews. This pandemic is actually bringing people closer to each other. So even like you said, buy Angel. Angel will be very happy if you buy all the Danishes and give it out. But you should just know that these things are happening all the time. Firm religious Jews are going around giving policemen ice cream or Danishes and stuff. There is a lot of love. There is, I would say, the nine, majority of the incidents are wonderful incidents that are happening. Yesterday, by the way, in Beit Shemesh, they had a big demonstration of ch children, kids, eight, 10 years old, were like standing in, in front of a brigade of uh, police and they were screaming to the policemen, against the policemen, they were all Jews, right? The policemen took a whole box of ice cream and they were giving it out to the kids. It was the funniest video ever. Like, it was so funny how these kids were screaming at them and uh, screaming at the police and the police were in, in return were giving them ice cream and all the kids were grabbing the ice cream. It was great. We have a lot of love in Israel. And the hatred is only on TV. TV want to make it, they want to hit the news. You know, they want an item for the, the news. So they want to show some bad things here and there. But majority of the incidents are wonderful because they have a lot of love between people here.
Thank you. I actually think that's such a beautiful way to end. And I'm conscious that you are probably the busiest man in Israel, bar none. I don't even think Netanyahu gets the dibs on that one. Um, so we're going to let you go. But I want to thank you so much, Eli, and I hope that this is the start, even though it's remotely, of uh, many more wonderful events that we can do together that lead to great things for United Hatzalah. Um, we've all been inspired, I think I speak for Quincy, Benjamin, and all the students that will be listening to this. So we're really grateful, and thank you so much. And keep safe. Don't forget to wear a mask. Thank you. <laughs> we'll take it with the Danish. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you very you. much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much to everybody for listening to today's Jams radio show. Stay tuned for more shows coming your way. Jams Radio is run by young Jewish student leaders and UJIA are proud to facilitate and support this program. We are dedicated to bringing you a range of voices and guests to inform and entertain our listeners. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are those of the guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of UJIA or our partners.